At this point in the service, we're going to stand together and then we're going to read God's word. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 19. I will read, I'm reading out of the ESV. You can find that if you'd like in your Bible and follow along. And then Pastor Chris will come up and share. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the women, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put en enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the fields by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word, and it speaks truth to us today, though that truth be difficult to hear. We need it. 
You know that, Lord. So help us, please. Help us to have open hearts, open ears, to understand, to believe, to receive, to trust, to submit to your holy word. Lord, help us to see ourselves more clearly because of what we will see this morning. Help us to see each other more clearly. Help us to see our world more clearly. Lord, help us to see you more clearly. Holy Spirit, we look to you to empower these moments. For the sake of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, as you know, many of you may know, we are into our third, fourth week in a big sermon series we're working through right now called You Are Here, Finding Our Place in the Biggest Story Ever Told. The idea in this series is that the Bible is one story, Jesus Christ is the main character of that story, and we are still in that story today. And so we begin the series by considering all that God was and all that God was doing before the story itself began. I guess what you could call the, the prologue or the backstory. And then last week, we considered creation. We saw that God created the heavens and the earth for his own glory. He created Adam and Eve in his own image so that they would rule over this world as God's representatives. We explored how Adam was the first person to bear the the offices of prophet and of priest and of king. And we began to see some of the implications of, of all of that for our lives today. So again, as we'll mention this from time to time, all the messages are, are on our church website. In this series especially, it may be important for you to go listen to ones that you missed. You can read them there as well. The manuscripts are there. But today we come to the part of the story that, that we knew was coming, the part of the story we knew we had to get through before we kept going, and that is the fall. This is the part of the story where Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and plunged themselves and all of their children into the depths of sin. Now, as we come to this story this morning, there's a real danger for us here, and that's the danger of familiarity. This story is familiar to us, most of us, I'm assuming so. Maybe it's not familiar to you, and if, if, if so, then that's actually an advantage to you this morning. But to many of us, the story is familiar, familiar to the point of, of humor. How many jokes, cartoons have you seen about the snake around the tree talking to the woman with the apple? And it's just so familiar to the point of, of, of jokes being made of it. And in the process of that, what happens is that we lose touch with the, the way this story really should impact us this morning. The way that this story should kick us in the gut to be frank, the way that this story should cause us to, to really reevaluate ourselves and, and, and to look at the world around us in, 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 in a different way. So as we're continuing this morning through the biggest story ever told, and we come to this part of the story, part that may be more familiar than others, we're going to need to work hard to set aside some of our assumptions. And the way that we're going to do that is simply by following very closely the way that this story is told in the text of scripture that was just read for us. Because what we're going to find is as we really pay attention to how this story is told in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to find a story that's masterfully told and more powerful than any cliche. This is a story that we're going to find is familiar in perhaps uncomfortable ways, not maybe the ways that we expected. Because what we're going to find out is that Adam and Eve's story is really our own story. It's a story of our own innocence lost. 
It's the story of us. And yet, as we're going to see, it's a story where the heaviness is shot through with, with powerful hope. So let's turn to that story now. The story picks up not long after where we left off last week, which was a place of, of total perfection. God saw all that he had made, and it was good. We didn't go through all of Genesis chapter 2 last week, but if you're familiar with it, you know that the story continues with God, God seeing how Adam was not good in a spot of being alone, and so he created Eve and brought her to him, and Adam freaked out, and they had the first, the first marriage took place. And Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, ends with these words, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve were living in a state of, of childlike innocence. That's what, that's what this is pointing to. They were like children in, in their complete purity and complete innocence. And then without missing a beat, because remember that big three there of starting chapter three, that's something that was added later. It's not there in the original text. Without missing a beat, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. And if we were able to read Hebrew, we'd understand that there's a very intentional play on words that's happening here because the word for crafty sounds almost identical to the word for naked. They rhyme and they almost sound like the same word. And, and it's, we're supposed to hear that. It's almost like I heard someone say, it's almost like it's saying the man and his wife were totally nude and the serpent was really shrewd. And it's not a joke. It's not supposed to make us laugh. But the, 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 the rhyming and the play on words is supposed to draw our attention to the fact that there's a big contrast here between two people who were so innocent, they had no clue that they were naked, to some creature who is the opposite of innocent, the opposite of clueless. Someone who was very, very shrewd, clever. Now, here's what's interesting, though, is that this word for crafty, when we hear the word crafty, we kind of hear, you know, evil music and think of a, 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 a bad uh, villain in a Disney movie or something like that, right? Like crafty has these negative associations to us. Wouldn't it have been that way to the original readers? Crafty was, was a neutral word. Didn't necessarily mean evil. It meant wise, clever. It even was used in Proverbs to talk about someone who's prudent in a positive way. So in other words, this word is used to show a contrast between innocent, clueless Adam and Eve and the clever, clever. serpent, but not necessarily evil. Right? The text does not tell us that the serpent is actually the embodiment of Satan. We find that out later. Right? Revelation 12, 9, the ancient serpent. This is Satan taking this form and indwelling this physical animal here. But we don't find that out right away. We're not told that. We're not told that the serpent's evil. And so what, what we're told here is nothing more than what Eve herself would have known. Eve didn't know the serpent was evil. Again, there was, there was no scary music and, and a thunderstorm that started as soon as the serpent started weaving his way towards Eve. She didn't know any more than what we're told. It's a serpent. and He was wise. He knew a lot. He was clever. Some people wonder why Eve didn't freak out with a serpent talking to her. I've heard some creative explanations for why Eve didn't just you know, lose her mind. But remember, in terms of life experience, Eve was a child. 
She had maybe only lived a couple of days for all that we knew. She, just like children, will not be surprised by certain things because they don't know any better. Eve didn't have the life experience to know serpent talking to me, that means it's indwelt by an evil spirit and I should be scared. She, she wouldn't have had the experience to know that. So you can see that the text is, is very subtle here. It's not telling us more than Eve herself would have known. There's a subtle, unassuming, wise, clever serpent who finds Eve. But right there is the very first red flag. Why did the serpent find Eve? Why did the serpent not find Eve and say, could I talk to your husband? I have something important that concerns both of you. Do you, do you see some of the things we talked about last week? That, that the serpent, by singling out Eve and going after her, is already attacking God's leadership structure. But he finds her and he asks an unassuming question. A question. He starts with a question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It sounds innocent enough, right? Just a, just a question. Hey, I'm just asking a question, right? But do you see what he did there? He intentionally, in his question, twists God's words. Because God didn't say that. God didn't say, don't eat of any tree in the garden. God said, you may eat from any tree in the garden. God said, you shall not eat from one particular tree in the garden, but that's, that's it. You're, you're free. And so the serpent knows this, and he's intentionally asking a misleading question. It's like he's saying, wow, did God really tell you to do something that was so unreasonable? And by simply asking the question in this way, the serpent is suggesting that it's possible for God to perhaps be unreasonable. You see that? Just the question is assuming that it's a possibility for God to give a command that's perhaps not in our best interests. That's maybe unreasonable. That's maybe over the top. But I mean, the biggest thing here is that simply by asking this question, right, by twisting God's words, putting words in God's mouth, and then by asking, wow, did he really say that? What the serpent is opening up is the Pandora's box of possibility that God is open and in a position of being able to be questioned by us, right? Just by asking the question, he's assuming that we can ask the question, that we're in a spot to question God. So how's Eve gonna respond? She's like, who are you to question our creator? That's not for us to do, get out of here. Is she gonna say that? No. Well, she says this, verse two to three. She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Notice two things here. First, Eve does not use the name for the tree that God used for the tree. Do you notice that? Eve does not say, we shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if she had said that, she would have been reminded of why they're not supposed to eat from it. Because it's about the knowledge of good and evil. And that's not something for us right now. But she does what people all throughout history do. Is they give things a different name to make it sound more innocent. Right? I think we do that all the time, right? 
We, we take terrible things and we give phrases and words to them that make them sound maybe not quite so bad. And so she, she doesn't call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because maybe if she had called it that, she would have stopped and gone, wait a second, yeah. And it would have been breaks on this whole thing. But no, she says, just the tree in the midst of the garden, as if it's just any old tree. And then she adds to God's command to them. Because she said, he said not to eat it, and neither shall you touch it. That's at the end of verse 3 there, lest you die. God didn't say you shouldn't touch it. That's nowhere in God's word to them. He did not tell them, don't touch it. Eve added that herself. Do you see how Eve is being very liberal in her use of God's word? Eve is not displaying a, a respect for God's word here. She kind of is feeling free to change things and add things and this suggests Eve is already buying the twisted thinking of the serpent. She's already vulnerable for what's going to come next because we know what comes next. It's the big lie. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what's happened here? The serpent has moved beyond twisting God's word to, to flat out denying God's word. You will not surely die. He puts a not in there where God said you would. What God said would happen will not happen. God did not tell you the truth. And God only told you that because he's jealously guarding his status. A status. A status that could be yours, Eve. Again, I hope you see all the parallels. We're going, to take, we're going to draw some attention throughout this message to some parallels between Eve and Adam's experience and our own. But this is how Satan works. He twists God's word. He messes with God's word. And he makes God's good commands seem foolish and arbitrary and silly. God doesn't want you to do that. That's silly. How he's always worked. But at this point, if Eve had been thinking clearly, what would Eve have said? If, if Eve had been fully aware of everything that she should have been aware of, she should have said a lot. We could have spent, I had to take almost 10 minutes off of my notes at this point of all the things that Eve should have been thinking about and could have said to the serpent at this point. I mean, there is no reason for Eve to believe that, that God was anything other than trustworthy. Right? Eve had no reason to believe that, the, that, that God was holding things back from her. And she had zippo reason to trust the serpent. Right? What had the serpent ever done to convince her that he was more trustworthy than God? Right? What was she thinking? And here's the whole point. She wasn't. Eve did not move to the next step by a process of careful thought, sitting down, thinking it through, and coming to a conclusion. No, she was not thinking. Listen to what verse 6 says she was doing. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be, here's the big word, desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. Eve was not thinking. Eve was wanting, desiring, craving, 
Do you remember how we saw the parallel between this verse here when we were in our series in 1 John? 1 John 2, uh, 1 John 2, 16, that talks about the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh and the pride of life. That's what was going on here. The Bible calls it lust. And according to scripture, this, 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 this is what's at the heart of all sin. This is what's wrong with us. This is what's wrong with us. We want the wrong things. We want them more than we want God. And so we push the truth of God out of the way in order to get at what we want. We know what it's like to do what Eve did here. We're not thinking clearly. We just want something and we push aside our conscience and we push aside the truth that we should be thinking about and we take it and it's only after we've taken it that we realize, what have I done? What was I thinking? We weren't. It's called lust. The serpent's ridiculous lies, right? completely ridiculous. She had no reason to believe them and trust him, but they seemed believable because they lined up and legitimized the desire that she had, the desire for this fruit, the desire for the food, the way it looked beautiful to her eyes and her craving to become wise like God. So she believed the serpent. She let herself be deceived and it happened happened she reached out she touched the fruit right there and she pulled it off the tree and she held it up to her mouth and she took a bite and she chewed and she swallowed and as verse 6 goes on to say she gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate when did Adam show up we don't know was Adam there the whole time so with his hands in his pockets, except I guess he didn't have pockets? What was he doing? We don't know. Did Adam just stumble in at the end, see the juice dripping off of Eve's lips and have a horrible decision to have to make? Do I part ways with this woman or do I join her? We, we don't know. But we know whatever happened, Adam listened to Eve instead of listening to God. And he took the fruit from her and he took a bite. And in that moment, everything changed. We don't, have to, we don't have to imagine, we don't have to, to, be, to think too hard to imagine what that felt like for Adam and Eve in those moments because every single one of us knows exactly how they felt in those moments. Every single one of us knows the sinking feeling in our gut, and the burn in our conscience as we realize that we've just done something that we can't take back. And nothing is ever going to be the same again. We know what that's like, every single one of us. But maybe we don't know what it's like to have that happen for the very first time. This verse 7 says that after eating the fruit, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We don't have time this morning to, to, to explore the, the full significance of, of what's going on here with their eyes being opened and everything. But, but what's, what's very clear here is that Adam and Eve's innocence is gone. 
They died in that moment. The pure, innocent Adam and Eve are dead. Things are never, never be the same again. And then, was it minutes? Was it agonizing hours? We don't know. But then God came. And again, don't we know this experience? Don't you remember as the feeling as a child when you had done something you shouldn't, broken something you shouldn't have been playing with? And after hours of silence, mom or dad pulls into the driveway and opens up the front door and their footsteps feel like thunder and they see the mess and they try to find us. And we run and we hide just like Adam and Eve did. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Instead of running to meet him, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Oh, and these haunting words. But the Lord God called to the man, said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. <coughs> he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We've all been there, haven't we? Guilty and knowing it. We're, we're just, we're treading water, we're scrambling and what do we do? We blame other people. Well, this wouldn't happen if you hadn't given me this woman. It's essentially what Adam is saying to God. He blames his wife, he blames God, he blames the serpent, but God sees through it all. God knows what they've done. God knows that Adam and Eve have just simply sinned, full stop. They have nobody to blame but themselves. And their sin is going to have powerful, heartbreaking consequences. It begins with Eve in verse 16. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. <clears throat> in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Do you remember how God had commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply And the consequence of Eve's sin is that her pain in that process is going to multiply too. Ladies in this room, you know the process of bringing forth children. In fact, the whole system in your body designed to do that is a process filled with pain. And that pain is a chosen consequence for Eve's sin. And along with that, Eve's relationship with her husband is going to be filled with tension, struggle. And next God speaks to Adam. God has more to say and more significant things to say to Adam. And that's because Adam's sin 
was worse than Eve's. Some people look at Eve's role in this and assume things about Scripture that are not there because Scripture repeatedly, consistently holds Adam responsible for sin coming into the world. Adam was more responsible than Eve was. Adam had heard directly from God. He was the one given responsibility to lead his wife. Adam was the one given the job of keeping the garden, of making sure it stayed a safe place, right? Which he failed to do. We see later on in scripture, it's a verse in 1 Timothy 2, verse 14, that unlike Eve, Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. He was not deceived. He went in eyes wide open. And scripture holds him responsible for all that happened. And so it's to Adam that God speaks these crushing words of curse, beginning in verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Who does God curse for Adam's sin? Not Adam, the ground earth itself. God promises Adam that from this point on, the earth itself is going to fight against him and one day the earth is going to win and turn Adam back into earth in a final stroke of painful irony But it's not hard to see that behind these words, there's a bigger truth. Because in cursing the earth, God has changed something fundamental in the way that nature itself operates. God has cursed the entire creation in response to Adam's sin. In the book of Romans, in the New Testament, chapter 8, Verse 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul describes things this way. He says this, speaking about this curse, speaking about these events, he says, for the creation was subjected to futility, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And then in the next verse, he uses a different phrase. He talks about the fact that the creation is in bondage to corruption. So this is telling us that in response to Adam's sin, God cursed the creation itself by subjecting it to futility and bondage to corruption. Those are big words, but I'm not going to define them and break them down for us because we all know exactly what this is talking about. We see this futility, this corruption, this curse around us every day. This world is falling apart. Don't we know it? Don't we see it? Our bodies are falling apart. Don't we know it? Don't we see it? Don't we feel it? Everything we build, everything we make, everything we plant, it falls apart. Yesterday, cleaning up some of those backyards, don't we see the earth fighting against us and the earth eventually winning? Farmers are struggling with this right now. 
Those crops that you work so hard to plant still sitting out in wet fields. It's the curse. And what we need to see here is that all of this curse and this corruption, this futility of the creation, it did not just happen. It wasn't like Adam and Eve sinned and bam, all of a sudden things started to fall apart. God himself stepped in to make this happen. God personally cursed the ground. God personally cursed creation with pain and futility and struggle and corruption in response to Adam's sin. And that's where all the mess comes from. I don't know how many times I've been in conversations where I'm either with someone or we're talking about someone who's just experienced some tragedy a cancer diagnosis, for example, or, or maybe there's been another natural disaster like the tsunami in Indonesia. And someone says something like this, we just don't know why these things happen. Yes, we do. We know exactly why these things happen. These things happen because Adam sinned and God cursed the creation in response to Adam's sin. That's why these things happen. So let's ask an important question. Is this unfair? Is God overreacting here? Isn't this a little harsh? Those are the kinds of, the kinds of questions Satan would ask, right? But our hearts have wondered them. Maybe your hearts have wondered them just even in these moments. Well, to answer that question, we've got to consider what would have happened if God had given Adam and Eve what they deserved? What did God say to them? What happened when they ate the fruit of the tree? What would be the consequence? He said, of the fruit of the tree, of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That's Genesis 2.17. Adam and Eve deserved instant death for eating the tree. And yes, they experienced inner death that day, but God did not give them what they deserved. He let them keep breathing. He let them wake up to see the sunrise the next morning. He let them live to hear the sound of their baby's cry, to grow old beside each other. He let them live. But all the while, living in a universe that was still beautiful, still showing God's glory, but was constantly reminding them of their sin. See, that's what's happening here. We need to understand. We need to see what's going on here. It's such an obvious connection, but it's one that we so often miss. God cursed the earth because of Adam's sin. So put yourself in Adam's shoes. He gets up the next morning and it's cold and it's uncomfortable because they're outside of Eden. And that experience is, tells him this is because of your sin. And he gets up and he has to make a plow and go work to plow the hard ground. And his hard work and the aching muscles in his back say, because of your sin. And the, the, the sweat drops 
drops down his face like he was promised and stings his eyes. And that experience tells him, because of your sin. And he bends down to pick up a weed and there's, it's got thorns on it, thorns and thistles. And it, it pricks his finger and blood comes out and it hurts. And that experience says, because of your sin. And as he grows older and struggles in his relationship with Eve and he feels death slowly working in his body, pulling him back down to that ground that he's been fighting with, all of that said, this is because of your sin. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see it? That God was using the physical world to show Adam and Eve the horror of their own sin. That's what's going on here. In cursing the world, God was showing Adam and Eve the ugly realities within their own hearts displayed around them in living, breathing, painful reality. So you don't know what a word for that is? Grace. The curse was an act of grace. Because if God had done nothing, if God had just let them get away with their sin and let them believe that it was no big deal, they just kept doing it, kept doing it, they would have had to face his justice eventually. That would have been cruel to do nothing. But if on the other hand, God had given them what they deserved right away, then there'd be no hope. So instead, God gives them grace. He keeps them alive, but he lets them taste the awful truth about how serious their sin really is every single day through a world that is screaming at them in the language of pain. Let's be clear here about one more thing. God was not overreacting. The problem The problem is that we underreact to sin. God never overreacts to sin. Adam and Eve and you and me, we all want to try and think that disobeying God and doing our own little thing is no big deal. We don't like to realize that the smallest sin, the tiniest little bite of forbidden fruit is an act of cosmic infamy against an infinitely, eternally glorious God. We don't like to face up to the fact that the smallest sin, the tiniest sin, the smallest sin that you have committed deserves all the fury of God's wrath and all the pain of an eternal hell. We don't like to recognize that. We want to pretend it away. And the curse forces us to face this fact head on. When God brings a perfect creation crashing down around Adam and Eve, he's not overreacting. He's mercifully showing them, this is how serious your sin is. This is what it's like. And he's giving them the opportunity to repent. And that's a theme we can't explore, but you trace that out throughout the rest of Scripture. When these things happen, it's God summoning us to see how serious our sin is so that we can repent. So you see, isn't it so sad that when things like this happen, when, when natural disasters happen, people tend to question God? Say, Why did God let that happen? How could God let my mom die of cancer the way that she did? As if we deserve better. 
The truth is that we deserve worse. And the whole point, please listen to this, the whole point of cancer and car accidents and tsunamis is to tell us this and to warn us and to give us a chance to turn from our sin and to repent and to trust in the Savior before it's too late. Now, this has been a lot today, I know, and I know that this has been heavy. I knew that it would be, and we have to face the heaviness, but we have one more stop to make because we can't miss the fact that this is not all that there is in the story. You may have noticed that I skipped over some verses earlier on. We have to hear God's words to the serpent, right? We miss that, the serpent in verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. Do you see that? Do you see that? The serpent was more clever than all the beasts of the field. Now he's more cursed than them all. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see how that curse to the serpent is actually a promise? God promises something. God promises in his words to the serpent, words that Adam and Eve would have overheard, that there is going to come an offspring from the woman who is going to bruise or crush the head of the serpent. The picture here is of, this, of someone coming and stepping on the serpent. And in the process, his heel gets hurt, but the serpent dies. He gets a fatal wound from this serpent crusher who is going to be born to the woman. Don't miss this. This is the very first place in the Bible where we find out a savior is coming. There is an offspring, a seed, a descendant who's coming, who's going to finish off this deceiving once and for all. So even from here, this is the very first place where God speaks hope to his people and says, look for a savior. Look for someone to be born. Look for a baby who's going to grow up to become a deliverer, who's going to crush the serpent and set you free from the curse. And these words are spoken before God speaks his words of curse to Adam and Eve. So these words of curse to Adam and Eve are painted on the backdrop of hope that there's going to come a savior. And we need to look and wait for him. That's why Romans 8.20 says God did all of this in hope. Because God had already planned the day when the offspring of the woman would walk the earth. And would break the curse by dying and walking out of his own grave, he'd already planned the day that we're still waiting for when he's going to make all things new. And when that offspring of the woman is going to reign on a new earth with his redeemed bride beside him. And that's all I'm going to say now because we've got the rest of the series that I do not want to give away in these moments, even though I hope you know what's coming. As we end, what's here for us today? What's, what can we take home from this today? Just a few quick pointers as we finish up here. I hope that we can remember today that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, so did we. Romans 5.12, 1 Corinthians 15.22, we died in Adam that day. Each single one of us was born a sinner because of what Adam did. And we can complain that that's not fair, but that's the way it is. And the truth is we would have all done the same thing that they would have done. 
And so the curse on creation, the curse that we've talked about, God's curse on creation all around us is a reminder, not just of Adam's sin, but of our own sin. We've all sinned. We've all bitten forbidden fruit. We've all chosen other things instead of God. And the truth is that the worst suffering that we can experience in this world does not compare to the ugliness of the sin that each single one of us has committed. So as we go out into our week, we're going to experience the curse this week. We've experienced it already this morning. Aches, pains, strife, conflict, weather that is less than ideal. This is the curse. Knowing that the curse is a picture of our sin means that we should respond to the curse with humility. We should not complain. We know that we deserve worse. But there's more than that. There's more than that, isn't there? Because if you know Christ, you know that the offspring of the woman has come, that he has been born. You know that those sins that we've committed that are so ugly have been paid for fully by this son of the woman on the cross. We know that he rose to life. We know that he's promised us new bodies just like his. We know that our aching longing to return to Eden is going to be fulfilled. So our experience of the curse gets transformed. Our suffering becomes hopeful suffering. It's like Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, the suffering that we experience as God's children is the suffering of a woman in labor. It hurts But there's new life coming on the other end of it. And we know that. Whatever you're going to experience this week that's going to hurt, that's going to be uncomfortable, it's birth pains of the new creation. That perspective is everything. We're going to spend a whole morning talking about that in the new year. But it's this perspective that is going to allow us to end this morning, like we're going to end here in just a moment, by worshiping. Team, you can come on up. We're going to end this morning by singing the song that we learned last week, celebrating creation, celebrating that the serpent-crushing offspring of the woman has come, and celebrating the fact that as we go out into our week, every experience of pain that we're going to have is just a reminder of the new creation that we have to look forward to. Father, we thank you for your word, which brings our world into focus and gives a reason and an explanation for the pain that we have all experienced and even will experience this week. But God, I thank you that throughout the echoes of the curse, there is hope because the second Adam, the offspring of the woman has come. The curse has been broken and a new creation is waiting for us. And so Lord, this week, Help us to groan together inwardly for that day. Groaning, waiting, and knowing that that day will come when pain and the curse will be erased and we will live the way we were always meant to from the beginning. God, help us to hope for that. Help us to hope for that in the middle of every uncomfortable thing that's coming at us this week. Help us to honor you, Lord, in all of this. God, we praise you for a story this big this good, this glorious, this hopeful. Help us to live our part in this well this week. To help us to do that, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.